Welcome to Working Dog Radio. Broadcasting the bite. This episode of Working Dog Radio is brought to you in part by the best training conference on the planet, Hits K9 Training and Conference, www.hitsk9.net, or call Jeff Barrett, 863-529-5113. We'll see you there. One of our other great sponsors, be sure to check them out, Ray Allen Manufacturing up in Colorado Springs, rayallen.com. Be sure to use the discount code WORKINGDOGRADIO for 10% off. Spell it out, get the discount. Everyone knows Ted and I are huge fans of Dogtra. Uh, we use all their products, lots of stuff. Dogtra.com, use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off a single item over $200. All right, everybody loves drag and drop the easiest way possible. The easiest way to get a kennel up and running is to get them from Horizon Structures. Go to horizonstructures.com or call 1-888-447-4337. Make sure you tell them that Working Dog Radio sent you. There you go. One of our newest sponsors and one of our favorites, Kinetic Dog Food. Kineticdogfood.com or call 512-279-8966. Get your dog on the right track. One of our other fantastic sponsors that are run by the Heiser, some of the best people in the industry. We love those guys. Uh, looking for a reputable canine kennel with dog sales and training services? They're located in sunny New Smyrna, Florida. Southern Coast Canine provides services worldwide from purchasing your next single or dual-purpose working dog to handler courses and seminars. Southern Coast is a great resource, so check them out. And where you can check them out is Southern Coast Canine. That's letter K, number 9.com, or give them a call, 877-903-DOGS. That's dogs. All right, we are back, Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Uh, I am Ted Summers, uh, normally from Tulsa, Oklahoma. However, uh, Eric and I are in uh, Richmond, Indiana, doing uh, HRD, doing a COVID HRD, no less. Um, Eric, what's up? Sitting in a room across the hall from you. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had some technical difficulties trying to figure out how to get one. headphones on both people, and it wasn't working, so... Uh, yeah, Eric's sitting in his hotel room and I'm in mine. Uh, we had a first pretty good first day at HRD, eh? Yeah, it was hot, but uh, the guys put in work. I think there's 17 dogs. Um, we did our usual day one stuff, found a couple holes we need to fill in with some guys and yep. and their dogs, but uh, otherwise, nice group of guys. Everybody was on their, you know, on their game. We didn't really have to wait for dogs, you know, it was pretty good. Yeah, you know, we had an interesting guest today, too. Um, for those listening that didn't know, um, there was a canine handler that was shot and injured um, a couple weeks ago um, during an apprehension of a murder suspect, and he was at the HRD in Hammond, Indiana, up north, up near Chicago, uh, about, what was that, like five weeks ago, six weeks ago? It seems like longer than that. Fucking COVID is just dragging on, man. This 2020 sucks. So um, he... Uh, Came today, um, bandage up. He was shot three times, uh, shot in the hand, shot in the shoulder, and in the leg. I think the uh, the leg one, his drop holster caught it. Um, but it was a it was an identical scenario to um, one we introduced to them while he was in Hammond. Um, and since then, uh, what did he say today? Like they had changed some of the things that they do um, with the beanbag rounds. Yeah, they. Um they had done window deployments, never shooting out the window with the beanbag round. Um, he had went back. We did it in Hammond. 
blasting the, you know, shooting the window, sending the dog through it, getting him used to it. He went back, worked on that beanbag sound and deploying his dog with it. And then, you know, got them to give him a beanbag shotgun in his car. And um, like a couple of weeks later, this, that incident happened. And then they ended up, uh, yeah, they ended up, um, nobody else was, well, the suspect was shot and he got bit, but um, I guess he survived-ish. So, but yeah, uh, it was cool to see him today. And I mean, he's in good spirits and I mean, shit, he was out, uh, he brought the dog out and he was working. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, just doing simple shit, back tie stuff with the dog and the dog was working his ass off. So, um, yeah, it was really, um, kind of a first full circle. I'm glad that he's okay, but, um, you know, it, it, uh, it's definitely humbling to be, to see and to hear that. So, um, we're going to work on getting them on here. Um, once everything kind of, uh, settles down and people forget about it. And then we can talk about some lessons learned from that deployment once, uh, everybody go moves on to something else. So, but yeah, um, tonight we have one, um, that we have been intending to do for quite a while. In fact, um, shit, about a year and a half ago, back when we were in the 20s episodes, um, I actually talked to um, Terry Fleck, the late Terry Fleck. Um, did a free interview with him, uh, and that interview never happened, sadly. Um, as everybody knows, or maybe you don't know, listen, um, Terry passed away. Um, he made some massive contributions to uh, canine law enforcement in the... Um, aspect of case law, um, general handling, kind of best practices, and kind of filtered through and sorted a bunch of the bullshit out for um, just an average handler. You're out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and you're on a 14-man department, and, you know, he made a resource um, for you guys, for us, um, that dealt specifically with everything that we deal with, right? Canine is such a highly specialized discipline in law enforcement, uh, and the case law is no um, is no is no exception to that. It's extremely specialized. I have friends that are federal attorneys, and even when I mention cases, them they're like, "I've never heard of that." And I'm like, "Well, why would you?" It only applies to a very very specific circumstance that you'll probably <laughs> never deal with. And so, but that doesn't excuse us from having to know it because it outlines kind of the best practices. There is no national certification standard set forth by the feds. There never will be. Um, they can't determine a caliber or a caliber that every uh, department should use or a national SWAT standard or even a national speed limit. So contrary to popular belief, there is no national certification mandated by any federal agency coming. There's not going to be anything going to happen. Um, so, one, uh, and even before Terry passed away, um, our guest had kind of picked up the torch and carried it. And since then, um, he has done very well with um, filling in that for where Terry left off, uh, picking up where Terry left off. So uh, I want to introduce Mike Kamisik. So Mike, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Uh, pleasure to be on. Yeah. No, it's a, uh, you know, this is, like I said, this has been one of the interviews that we have wanted to do. It's one of the things that I'm really passionate about, one, because I read a lot. And two, um, I kind of figured out a lot of the things early on in my canine career that we do things the way we do them because of somebody fucked it up or did it right first. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, we don't just do things the way we do them because, like, we don't make three announcements at a door during a building search because three is a magic number. 
Like, you know, we don't do two. We, we do, don't do three. We do, we, we don't do, or we do three, we don't do four. And it's not because of some, it's not because that's the way we've always done it. It's because there is case law that says you need to do it this many times. And so, um, and that rule that goes down to everything that talk about changes of behavior. We talk about train final response, all the little things that we talk about in Facebook forums and, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all this other stuff comes from a lot of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, so before we get into that, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, um, which is pretty lengthy and, uh, how we got into canine. Yeah, no, uh, you said you like to read, so you must be the one handler out there that, uh, I've encountered <laughs> that actually likes to read. I just like to read. Uh, that's not, not a slam on, on handlers. I think that's, uh, just a law enforcement thing. Yeah, no, um, I'm from a, uh, I'm, I'm from the people's Republic of the great feeling state of Illinois. Uh, just, just outside, uh, uh, outside of Chicago, um, actually I work in the Chicago metropolitan area. Um, I'm still working. I got 21 years as a police officer, 25 years in law enforcement. And I've been a canine handler since, uh, 2004. Um, I'm a instructor and certified instructor in just about every thing there is in law enforcement to be an instructor in use of force, which is my passion. Um, defensive tactics, handcuffing, firearms, um, rifle, laser, you name it. Um, what's lethal? Uh, I'm an instructor, and so I do a lot of in-service uh, training for uh, the agency that I work for. Um, we're a smaller agency. It's just a one-dog one dog, uh, agency, uh, so small, um, but um, pretty, like, um, consistent or or average size for the Chicago metropolitan or the Chicago, Chicago suburbs. So, um, I started teaching out of a kennel, uh, that we have up here, a private vendor that we have up here that uh, does, uh, uh, dog training on doing the use of force and the uh, legal aspects and, uh, became pretty good friends with Terry Fleck and, uh, kind of studied under him, um, and learned how to, one of the biggest things I think that I found as an instructor, not just in canine, but an instructor in general law enforcement is that, um, you know, cops just don't like it. And reading case law is for most people, um, and a lot of attorneys who are friends of mine will tell you that it's, it's putting nails, you know, into your eyeballs. <laughs> so a lot of people just don't like it. I enjoy it. And uh, so... What I had to do, or my goal was, is to figure out how do you take that case law, take that legal jargon, and then turn it into the Reader's Digest version that cops can can understand. And one of the things I tell every single one of the students, whether it's canine or whether you're in my use of force course or whatever, um, we have to be doing the right things for the right reasons at the right time. And... We have to we have to know what we can do. We have to know when we can do that, and we have to be prepared to immediately take those actions. So, having this understanding of case law, and is a great thing, but being able to apply that case law in uh, a situation that's tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving in a split second it are two different things. So, my goal is to bring that case law out of the legal jargon and, and bring it into the, the layman's copper's term, and then 
be able to get the cops then to be able to apply what that case law is out on the streets. So that's that's kind of my background. Um, uh, I do uh, work for the Illinois Law Enforcement Training and Standard Board. I work, um, part of our new standard in the state is that you have to go through an online legal portion. So I've written the legal portion and the legal portion for Illinois Law Enforcement Training and Standards Board, which is like uh, the post for those of you who post uh, in your state. So that's kind of my background. That's kind of where I'm from, where I'm coming from, and uh, what I'm doing. We kind of talked before we started recording about some of the things we were going to kind of cover tonight so that we're not. And for those listening, um, Mike was on uh, Police Canine Radio, and he was on Hits Radio with uh, the boys over there. So he covered some stuff about some really important cases there. Um, and we don't want to kind of double up so that we can kind of spread the information out. So um, I know you talked a little bit about the Utah case, um, but let's kind of talk a little bit about that. And Eric wanted to make a comment and make the extension on some of the comments that were made during that podcast. So kind of briefly talk about what happened in Utah. Yeah, so um, in the Utah case, um, I, I would think probably it's gotten all over the canine industry. So you, you either have heard um, something about it, but uh, it's a narcotic case. And basically what happened is, is that a defense witness expert attacked um, not just the, um, the handler, uh, but attacked the entire uh, Utah Post certification process. It's a case called uh, United States versus Jordan. There's actually a companion case that's coming down with that United States versus Hendrickson. Um, but this defense witness expert pretty much convinced the court that the Utah Post um, is, is not a valid certification because they don't do a double blind um, certification. For those who don't know, a double blind is when the dog handler and the evaluator do not know where the uh, where the fines are. And um, that's become pretty a big contention, I would say, in the canine industry because um, first, as it came out in uh, the Swig Dog best practice, Swig Dog being the scientific working group on, uh, uh, on dogs and orthogonal detector guidelines, and um, they talked about double blind. And then there was also another study that um, had come out after that uh, with Dr. Lisa Litt. Uh, and she had talked about the double blind study and um, the handler beliefs affecting the dog's um, actual ability to uh, um, make an alert. So this particular defense witness expert pretty much convinced the court, which is the United States District Court for the District of Utah, that uh, the post certification uh, was, was just invalidated. Um, because they didn't do a double blind, they didn't do a double blind certification or evaluation. And the first thing that I teach, I start every single one of my classes of uh, at is is a refresher and a review of of our civics lesson, and so that people need to understand how the court system actually works. So at the federal level, you have the Supreme Court of the United States. They are the um, the top. Um, every federal court in the country has to follow what the Supreme Court of the United States says. And then directly underneath the Supreme Court of the United States, it's the United States Court of Appeals. 
for, there's actually 13, but for our purposes, we're just going to say that there are 12 Circuit Court of Appeals that cover, covers um, circuits 1 through 11, and then the D.C. Circuit. There's some others, but they really don't apply to us in law enforcement. And then below the United States Court of Appeals sits the United States District Court. And there are, I think there's 96, don't quote me on that. There's in the mid-90s number of district courts in the country. The district courts are the lowest federal courts. They do not set precedent. They do not set any binding um, anything over law enforcement. So what's key for law enforcement is to understand, at least at the federal level, is that you you have the Supreme Court that you need to be paying attention to, and then you need to be paying attention to the United States Court of Appeals for the circuit in which you sit, in which you're operating under. So as I said, I sit in the, uh, I, I, I'm in the Chicago metropolitan area. I sit in uh, the failing state of Illinois that is in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals that covers Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana, where you guys are at. And so um, the officers that, that are in those states are bound by what Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals says. Um, so it's important for those officers to understand that. Now, within those Court of Appeals sits the lower level district courts. And so this United States versus Jordan case is just a lower level district court case. It doesn't set any binding precedent. It's a it's a nice to know um, case. It's a nice to know to, to see that if you are ever going to be in front of that judge, how that judge is going to rule. But it doesn't set any precedents. Um, so officers have to understand that. And then at the court, at the state level, you have your own state Supreme Court and then your own intermediate court of appeals, whatever that might be in that particular state in which you sit. And so it's important then to know what those appellate courts or intermediate courts of appeals are saying and the Supreme Court within the state. Now, the interesting thing is, is a lot of people think that just because the Supreme Court ruled um, on something that it, it is binding and precedential throughout the United States, uh, specifically for, for, for canine, and that that's simply not the case. First of all, I can't tell you, I follow the social media, um, just like you guys do, and I can't tell you the number of um, posts, you know, you see, well, uh, the Supreme Court said there that we have to train so many hours, or the Supreme Court said that we have to do, the, you know, we have to uh, have verbal outs on bites, for an example. Well, first of all, the Supreme Court has never made any of those there's only six, uh, seven at the most Supreme Court decisions that have anything to do with canine, and they're all within the narcotics, uh, uh, the narcotic uh, contraband um, discipline. So I'm not exactly sure where people are getting this stuff, but let me go back to my point is, is that the Supreme Court of the United States, um, let's just say, uh, let's take a case that I think everybody probably is familiar with, Illinois versus Cabayas. Uh, which is a narcotics dog case, uh, narcotic contraband dog case. that uh, actually comes out of Illinois, Illinois State Police. Um, they're working drug interdiction on Interstate 57. Uh, a troop makes a traffic stop, and a uh, canine handler with uh, ISP is in the area, comes by, takes his dog out, does a free air sniff, dog alerts, and they search the vehicle and they find crime-related evidence. That's the gist of the case. Hey, uh, going up into the Illinois courts, at the state level, 
the Illinois Supreme Court said in a case called People versus Company, it said, hey, this, we don't believe that in the state of Illinois that police officers can take a dog around a car for a free air sniff during a traffic stop unless there's reasonable or articulable suspicion to do so. Well, the one thing that the, one good thing that the Attorney General of Illinois at the time, Lisa Madigan, did is she actually filed a writ of certiorari and petitioned the Supreme Court of the United States to look at it. So it goes over to the Supreme Court of the United States. They granted the writ of certiorari and um, they said, no, you, obviously most of us know or should know that, hey, you do not need reasonable suspicion to conduct a free air sniff during an a ongoing traffic stop. And they remanded it back to the Illinois Supreme Court. Um, and now the, once it comes back to the Supreme Court of your state, I'm just using this as an example, this happened to come back to the Illinois Supreme Court. The Illinois Supreme Court actually has two different decisions that they can make. They can accept what the Supreme Court of the United States said, or they can reject it and say, well, that's nice. That might apply at the federal level. But in the state of Illinois, our constitution is more restrictive. And um, we believe that reasonable articulable, articulable suspicion is needed in the state of Illinois or whatever your state, fill in the, fill in the blank. And um, so they, they can actually reject that. So it's really important to know not yes, that the Supreme Court made a ruling, but how does your state court actually interpret that ruling? And, and most states are in what's called a limited lockstep. It's, a limit, it's called a lockstep doctrine. But most states are, are in a limited lockstep, meaning that they will accept what the Supreme, how the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution of the United States similarly or substantially similar to their state constitution's provision. So if it's the Fourth Amendment, uh, we're looking at it at the federal constitutional level in Illinois. That's Article One, Section Six of the Illinois Constitution. So, what Illinois said is, is you know what, you're right. We will interpret the fourth, uh, the Article One, Section Six of the Illinois Constitution, the same or substantially similar to the way that the Supreme Court interprets the Fourth Amendment. So it's important for uh, all law enforcement, specifically canine handlers, um, specifically canine handlers. Um, to understand how the courts are actually set up and, and 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 what their court of precedent is, and the other thing that the, that that handlers need to understand is when they're looking at it. When you're when you're on our website looking at case law, you'll see that what I do is I always put on there whether this is a, a published or an unpublished uh, opinion, and so what happens is, is the court. For the most part, the majority of the opinions that come out are what's called unpublished. And unpublished opinions are either non-precedential or have very limited precedent. Um, the published opinions are the opinions that actually hold binding weight on the law enforcement officers that are, are out there. The unpublished opinions typically cannot be cited unless uh, it's about a matter of law that's happening in a particular case. And the majority of these these cases that are out there are unpublished opinions. So it's important for not only officers to know what their courts are saying, but then when you look at the opinions or you're reading an actual particular case law, it's important to know whether that's a published opinion or an unpublished opinion to, to know how much weight this, this opinion actually carries uh, on the, the officer. And... Um, 
that's a big thing. I mean, that's that's really huge. So that United States versus Jordan case is it's a lower level court decision. It's an it's an order. It's got no precedential, no binding weight to it. Yet, I'm sure as you guys go across the country, and I get it all the time from uh, either supervisors or administrators or handlers. Hey, did you see this particular case? It's flying all over, and um, you know what does that mean? Well, it means nothing. It means nothing to anybody, to be quite honest with you, except for the Utah people, the, the Utah law enforcement that have to go up in front of this judge. You know, right. um, that that's pretty much what it means. So there are some cases, though, um, two really famous ones that um, are are at the appellate level in their respective district uh, are in their appellate level um Kerr, which we've talked about everybody's talked about i mean that's been cited what 421 times i think uh, last time i checked it was like 421 times i think it's been cited in all 12 districts or all, all 12 appellate level districts like everyone is super familiar with it and they kind of cite it as not de facto but you would have to assume that if that anything in that were to challenge and go into the supreme court they would probably deny cert and just kick it back and be like, it's already been settled. <laughs> like there's, I, I there has there there can't be a compelling argument as to how any of these 400 and something odd times it's been cited in every district is going to be different somehow. Um, same thing with Robinette versus Barnes, um, which is the one that classified canine as non-lethal uh, use of force, but it's been cited the same. I can't even. I I looked at one point; it was 400 and something times, and. Um, and those are two cases that I think, while they aren't binding in theoretically in any district other than where they were at their appellate district, but they are cited as kind of like de facto law. And other other areas have accepted that as kind of like, you know, under these circumstances, we'd make the same decision type of deal. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's pretty much uh, settled. Right. What, 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 there what is the no attorneys issue. would say, or the judge, yeah. Yeah, this is settled settled law. Um, Terry Fleck used to call that the mandate. It was a court mandate. It's what he would, would how he classified it. Um, I call it, it's, it's a best practice standard because it's been, like you said, it's been cited so many times. And uh, if you really want to do it, it's, it's, or you really want to talk about it, it's the 99% rule. And as long as you're following the 99% rule, you're probably going to be pretty good. And and Kerr versus City of West Palm Beach, Florida, that is a 99% rule. Robinette yeah. versus Barnes is a 99% rule, with the exception, and I, I hate to say this for you, your listeners out in the Ninth Circuit, but the Ninth Circuit had said in a case, um, I believe it was Watkins versus City of Oakland. Yep. Um, uh, they said that uh, they were talking in in. in in, in talking about Robinette versus Barnes, which is uh, out of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, what the Ninth Circuit said is, is had they been the ones to decide the case in Robinette, they would have disagreed with the Sixth Circuit that they thought that that was inconsistent with, with um, their case law at that particular time, which very disturbing to me. Um, right. I fear, I fear, I fear that if a police dog in the Ninth Circuit kills somebody unintentionally, obviously, if, right. if somebody unintentionally, that this Ninth Circuit is going to um, the rule opposite of Barnes. That's right. It's the and then they'll create an issue. That's, that's, yeah, they'll create the issue, <laughs> and then the Supreme exactly. Court will have to do it. But 
Kind of like Eric says, nobody gives a shit what California does. So, um, and nobody cares if they had interpreted it because had they interpreted it when it happened in 1979, they would have came to the same conclusion. I don't care what they would have done in whenever Walk when was Watkins like 90. Uh, I don't remember when it was. 80, but that, 89, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, there you go. So it was published in nine, or yeah, but I, I, but I don't care. <laughs> like, I get yeah, it. I mean, you matter. can still bite people in California if you're listening to this. I promise. I don't care what the AG says. No, absolutely. Like, yeah, you. It's not. You can still bite oh. people. I promise. So. And the Ninth Circuit, actually, if you read the Ninth Circuit cases, the Ninth Circuit cases, for the most part, they're, they they are on board with with canine apprehension so oh, yeah. uh, they're consistent with the rest of the country so right it's disturbing when you read certain things like that you know for sure. yeah when uh we come back uh we're here in a minute i'm gonna ask some other questions but um we're gonna talk about some of the other stuff in terms of the liability portion of this uh but before that um where does this um 16 hours thing come from oh sure so <clears throat> It comes from something that's called best practices or um, industry standards. And the, the question I always get from, mostly from supervisors, is, um, well, where does this, who sets this standard? Well, <clears throat> nobody per se sets it because there is zero federal standard out there, as you said. There's no national standard. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States has never said that 16 hours is the, uh, the the minimum standard for maintenance training for canines. But if you look at um, initially Swig Dog, uh, and you look at the new, which is uh, um, the OSAC, the NIST and OSAC Dogs and Sensors Committee, they, they just published a, uh, again, they're like a, um, Think tank. That's what Swig Dog was. So people don't understand Swig Dog. Oh, it's like they're, they're they're think tanks of scientists and and um, professionals within a particular industry um, who come together and kind of say that there's a consensus of best practices. And so what Swig Dog said and what uh, OSAC has continued to say, they just published theirs in uh, this year, as a matter of fact, 2020, um, that. Uh, the consensus is that 16 hours minimally is what dog handlers and canine teams should be at for monthly maintenance training. And then if you look at our, our major, major national canine um, associations, uh, North American Police Work Dog, United States Police Canine Association, uh, the largest, which is the National Narcotic Detector Dog Association, uh, National Police Canine Association, all of these associations have said... Um, yes, we agree that the 16 hours is a, a minimum standard that handlers should be meeting. And Terry Fleck did a poll um, back when he was alive, um, starting in 1995. He polled handlers and he, he asked them, how many hours of, of monthly training do you do with your dog? And what he found is that 99.9% .9 of the industry is meeting the 16 hours of minimum of training. So when you take all these, we say we have two uh, separate consensus bodies. We have um, major national organizations, and we have um, have this poll, which I'm starting to um, now duplicate as I go out, out and teach my seminars 
across is to 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 kind of replicate or duplicate um, Terry's poll to find out. I, I'm I, I'm willing to bet that the number is actually going to be higher than 16 hours, but that at least the handlers are meeting the 16 hours. So that comes from a best practice standpoint. And and the only thing that the courts ever have talked about is whether the dog is properly trained. And so I guess the question comes back as to well, what does properly trained mean? Well, properly trained based on these um, main players within the canine industry, the U.S. canine industry, they're saying that at least the minimum hours is 16, uh, 16 hours per month. Okay. Well, that's where that comes from. That's where yeah. so that 16 hours comes from. It was kind of just a little bit like, because, you know, and this kind of leads into what we're going to talk about when we get back. Um, but... You know, I, I'm shocked to find that when Eric and I both sell dogs to people that admins are like, what do you mean? Like, they have to do something other than handler school. I'm like, yeah, bro. Well, like, you got to do, like, they got to like they got to train this many hours a month. And um, it, I think they get shocked a little bit. And they can, they're like, ah, it's 16. Like, man, that seems like, you know, that, that's, I don't know if I can budget for that. And I'm like, that's not really how this works. So, you know, you I kind of explain it to them. And I'm like, you know, it's an hour before after 30 minutes before after that's when they're supposed to be doing it or you can schedule them on a day which is what my guys do i mean my local guys come to me uh once a week for four hours um it's overseen it's accredited by our state cleat uh, cleat which is our version of post in oklahoma and um it's overseen by myself and scott and you know we're cleat we're you know we're cleat accredited and then all the all the course numbers are done and every, like all the resumes and all that shit is done so while they're there, all of that stuff is overseen by trainers, by accredited people within that organization. And, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, that's just normal for Canada. I'm like, well, uh, yeah, but I mean, it, it is. But, you know, it's a little different than just like going and saying, oh, I'm just going to go fuck around and do this for this amount of time. <laughs> so which I see that a lot, too. And they're like, no, we do. I do obedience once a day. I'm like, OK, well, that counts. But I mean, you that's not what really, I mean, it has to be documented, which is the whole Harris thing. But um, yeah, if you look at, if you look at the consensus, um, the consensus is, is that you should be in that 16 hours, you should be hitting every single discipline that, that the dog is trained in within that right. 16 hours, at least touching upon that kind of stuff. So if you're just doing a BDS, I, I did a, uh, an audit for an agency, um, that was having some, some problems with their canine unit. And so I, I get there and, uh, their training reports and I'm looking through their training reports and, and these particular handlers, they work 10 hour days and I'm looking through them and on a, they, they, the, every once a week they have a 10 hour training day and I'm looking through and um, one or more of the handlers consistently were doing two narcotic sniffs uh, on a vehicle within 10 hours. That, that's all that they were, they were right. doing. I said, okay, we could, there's a big red flag right there. I mean, if you can only get two narcotic sniffs on a vehicle done in 10 hours, you got a real problem on your hands as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, but that's where I the mean, liability, that's where the liability lies. It, 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 that part lies with the, the uh, supervisors because the agency um, under, under Monell, which comes out of a, a Supreme court case called Monell versus department of social services in the city of New York. It's a 1978 case. And basically the Supreme court said that um, agencies and supervisors can be liable for certain things. If they are um, in order to be held liable, they have to be the moving, the moving or the driving force behind the constitutional rights violation. Um, well, if your dog is not properly trained, 
in uh, apprehension techniques or your handler's not properly trained in the Fourth Amendment, which is primarily what we're dealing with, uh, whether it's the narcotic side or our apprehension side, um, then the agency and the supervisor um, under Monell or under, of course, Canton versus uh, Harris, um, that they are the driving force behind the, uh, the the constitutional rights violation. That's really where the liability is. And there's a real good case out there. Um, it's only out of the Sixth Circuit, so, um, but I think it's one of the biggest supervision cases of all times, which is Campbell versus uh, uh, Spring, uh, City of Springboro. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, well, before before I, we get there, though, we got to take a break. But, yeah, that's a perfect yep. segue. And, yeah, and Eric, I, <laughs> Eric's talked about it once before, and it was before his time in the unit when you weren't there when the, that case happened with Canton, were you? Canton v. Canton v. Harris, no. Uh, yeah. that, was, that was before my time, but... Um, you guys talk about it a lot. It's though. funny because <laughs> I got sued uh, in federal court for a, um, got into a fight with a guy who died, and it was um, excited delirium case, and the the jury found uh, all of us officers not guilty, like we they we were not liable for his death, but they nailed the city for 1.8 million for not training how to handle excited delirium cases. Oh, and they cited shit. Canton v. Harris in their opinion. Mm -hmm. Yikes. Yeah. So <laughs> that is a perfect segue into the commercials. Don't skip through them. And uh, we'll be back in a second to pick up where we talked off, pick up where we left off uh, with liability and supervision. So hang out for a second. And Ray Allen Canine Manufacturing. It's no secret that we love Ray Allen Canine Equipment. We use their products every single day. Their mission statement says it all to be a world leader in quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police, military, Schutzen and ring sport to exceed our customers' expectations and delivery on time, every time at a fair price. We full-heartedly believe they've held true to that since it is our go-to one-stop shop for everything dog. One of the longtime sponsors of Working Dog Radio from the beginning has been Highland Canine in North Carolina. Tactical Police Canine, a.k.a. Highland Canine in North Carolina, offers training, seminars, and consulting globally for police, military, and non-government agencies. They provide customized training programs to address specific problems and meet the needs of your organization. Check out their wide array of handler courses, instructor courses, supervisor courses, and online courses at Tactical Police caninetraining.com uh, Jason and Aaron Ferguson are two of our most favorite people and they have been with us since the beginning so hit them up we get it fueling a working dog can be tough but they need that high quality food to give them the energy and nutrients that they require for the work we ask them to do kinetic dog food has a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is made specifically for working and sporting dogs they have a full line of foods and supplements available and they've been working to perfect their line with thousands of dogs in hundreds of departments across the U.S. And you can buy it locally, online, or at Tractor Supply. Okay. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with the one and only Dogtra. These guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball training, bark collars. If it's electronic, Dogtra is the best. They are truly revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. Plus, they give us a great discount code. Go to dogtra.com. Everybody hears me say all the time, you can't teach dogs to bite people, and I'm shocked when they do. 
inevitably I get bit. You've all heard me talk about how I get tagged and being tagged by a dog sucks. So I've used quick term <laughs> to help myself. Uh, but before I had to go to the doctor's office, uh, it, it definitely helped keep down infection and everything else. And I've had some uh, non-scarring because of it, too. So it's pretty good. But it's no exaggeration. The stuff is great. Once daily treatment for any skin condition on small wounds to help stop little issues from becoming big ones that your admins are sure to love. It comes in a spray. It comes in an ointment. It comes in a dressing. Quick Derm is great at creating protective barrier and promoting wound healing. There's no reason not to have a bottle of this in the patrol car, or your kennel, or your first aid cabinet. Plus, it's, it's uh, temperature stable. So you can keep it in the patrol car when it's cold, when it's hot, whenever, and it'll still be good. Make sure you hit them up at vetcare.us and use the discount code 10WDR for a discount on your first purchase, which is going to be 10%. Have you ever dreamed of having your own kennel but don't know where to start? Horizon Structures has taken all of the guesswork out of building a kennel. Everything is pre-built to your specifications and preferences and then assembled and dropped off at your land. Boom! New kennels. And these things are amazing. You've got to see them to truly believe them. Their website, horizonstructures.com, is a one-stop shop. Build your best kennel, your favorite things you want, Check it out, horizonstructures.com. All right, we are back uh, with Mike Kamisic, and we have been talking about case law stuff. Um, and right before we left, we talked about um, a case that involved Eric's old department, and thou, um, that was actually one of the cases cited, and they dinged the city for a lot of money. Uh, it had nothing to do with canine, ironically. But in the second half of this interview, I want to talk about the largest percentage and group of liability in canine um, and the and not necessarily the myth, but the, like the the boogeyman, um, as Eric likes to say, of liability. Um, right before we kind of took off for the break, uh, Mike was talking about the um, supervision portion of this. And when I start talking to administrators, especially from smaller departments or small or even big ones, like I was telling like while we were talking during the break, um, my home department. Um, has no dogs. Um, they are one of the 50 largest law enforcement agencies in the country, and they have no dogs because they are scared of liability. Now, mind you, all the deputies have cars and guns, but they are scared <laughs> of a dog and its liability, um, which to me is almost unfathomable. So, and like Eric says all the time, you know, people, somebody just told them along the way. And so when I start talking to administrators, and uh, I think Mike says the same thing, um, probably differently than I do, but the largest source of liability in canine is failure to supervise or failure to compensate. Um, when you look at the bulk of canine case law, even though it's tiny in comparison to like everything, it's failure to supervise, failure to train which is also failure to supervise, or um, failure to compensate. Um, and right before we left, we were talking about a case. Uh, which one was it, Mike? It was the Canton versus Harris one. Um, and the Campbell yeah, case. Yeah, versus Campbell. Yeah, Campbell, Campbell specific to canine. Right. Um, but they cite, the, they cite Canton and they cite, uh, cite Monell. But um, just a real a brief background, it's actually a consolidated case. Um, there's actually two cases that come out of it, two use of force cases that come out of it, uh, where the dog is biting, uh, bites somebody, and they're on lower level offenses. Um, I, I think you might argue that 
uh, well, I'll just go through them really quickly. One, one, one case is um, guy is at a bar with his, his girlfriend. Um, girlfriend says she's had enough. She wants to leave. So she takes the car and she drives to her, uh, to her house, which isn't that far away. And then it, uh, as the night uh, progresses, the boyfriend says, oh, um, you know, I'm done, but she's got my car keys and she's got my car. So I'm going to walk, uh, walk to her house because it's not that far. So he walks over to her house and um, she's sleeping and he's pounding on the door trying to you know, rouse her out of bed and she's not waking up. So he's kind of yelling and banging on the door. And um, uh, of course, in the middle of the night, so good neighbor hears this going on and and does what every good neighbor does and calls 911. And, and here comes um, the Springboro, Ohio Police Department out there. One of them happens to be a canine handler. And uh, they're coming uh, with their sirens on. Um, so it's a disturbance of, or something. And he hears the police coming and, and, and he says, I'm out of here. So he kind of runs around the back of the house and, and he's hiding in the back of the weeds there. So the, the, the officers get there, one of them being the, the, the canine handler, and they can see the girlfriend through through a little part of the window. They can see that she's in there. She's sleeping. And they can see that she's fine. She's not in any distress. Um, and they talk to the neighbor and this kind of stuff. Well, they decide at this particular point, this would be a great dog deployment. And they get the dog out of the car and they track the guy to the back of the house. And now there's a factual dispute as to what happens next, but... Long and short, this guy gets gets bit by the dog. The second case that comes out of this is an underage drinking party case. And <clears throat> coppers go there. Um, one of the girls who's there, she starts getting uh, lippy with the officers. So we have a pissing off the police. She goes into handcuffs. Everybody else is getting citations. She's going to jail now for the underage drinking. They get her into the back of the police car. So... While she's in the back of the police car, she slips the handcuffs to the front, she rolls the window down, she gets out of the police car, and she runs off down the street before the cops know that she's missing. Well, now, she, not only did she piss the police off because she was being mouthy with them, but now she's ran off with somebody's handcuffs, and now they're really pissed. So they take the dog, and they, they do a track on her. Well, the dog ultimately, long story short, the dog ultimately finds her in like one of those little children's playhouses um, in somebody's backyard. Um, there's a material dispute of fact, whether she's sleeping or what have you, whether warning announcements were made, but long and short of it is she gets bit. And so now we have these two consolidated cases that come down. It's a, it's a case called Campbell versus city of Springboro. And they make a ton of claims against the city itself, or again, failure to supervise and failure to train. Now, the handler made several complaints to their agency about not being able to get to um, training, um, uh, on a regular uh, training. Um, he was not able to get to certification. I think he was a couple months lapsed on his certification at the time of these incidents. And um, so they brought the bosses in. And it's one of these, probably, I would say, probably the most common throughout the country setup is you have your one dog, and then this one dog team is either assigned to a sergeant who has a bunch of other um, duties uh, and, and a, other spanning control, maybe traffic and, 
and and uh, tack team or whatever, or you're you're just working for whatever sergeant happens to be working for that day. So that's kind of the setup that's going on here. And he, even though this guy's complained, Hamlet's complained, he's not allowed to go to training. He's he wasn't allowed to get the uh, uh, in Ohio, uh, as Eric knows. There's a uh, uh, the Ohio Post has specific standards for for dogs. So he's outside of the Ohio Post. And um, he's got a bark and hold dog, allegedly. And so when they get the, these supervisors under deposition, the plaintiff's attorneys, they start questioning the supervisors about training. They start questioning oh. the supervisors about the certification. They start questioning the, the supervisors about what it means to have a bark and hold dog. What does that mean? They, they don't have a policy. As a matter of fact, the handler downloaded a sample policy off of Terry Flex website brought that into the chief and and that that was uh, there's even a dispute whether that was even accepted as the policy of the department so you have all these things coming into play and the court destroyed the supervisors of the administration uh in this case and this is at the lower these are the comments that i'm going to say right now are we're at the lower court level uh it was at the, the the district court of ohio but this was upheld by the united states court of appeals for the sixth circuit but again when they were going through this, they cited Kerr versus City of West Palm Beach, Florida. Again, so we all kind of goes back to that foundational case. Um, but one of the things that they said in here was was shocking to me. They said uh, the evidence indicates that the officer's inability to keep up with the dog's maintenance training resulted from a systemic, uh, a, a systematic lack of supervision and training throughout the upper levels of the police department. Um, to the extent that the officer supervisors were aware of the policy, it provided only vague guidelines for training and certification. So neither the chief nor anyone else in the department ever set forth any written guidelines for uh, the amount and type of training that the department would require its canine unit to complete. Um, so they just go through systematically going through here and destroying every single one of these supervisors to the point where they said that the chief of police himself be individually liable for the plaintiffs in this case's Fourth Amendment violations. Um, so when we talk about this, the majority of the liability is not with the handler. It's not with the dog itself, um, because there's there's when you look at the grand scheme of things, there's little case law. There's there's way more axon teaser cases out there than there are dog cases. I would tell you. Um, oh, there is. So when you're looking at <laughs> wait, when you're looking at liability, I mean, when you're looking at liability, the dog is 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 one of the smaller portions of the liability. And in this day and age, when we're talking about de-escalation as being the buzzword, and um, what better tool do we have to de-escalate a situation? Any canine handler. That's worth their salt knows that when you bring the dog out of the car, um, there's a high likelihood that this person is going to surrender just because the dog's there. What a better, what a better de-escalation um, uh, and a reduction or mitigation and liability um, of the dog. Yes, we do have cases where handlers make mistakes and we have unintended um, bites. You guys said it. I don't. You guys uh, say it all the time, right? You can't train a dog to bite and then be surprised when they bite somebody. So, yeah, yep. we do have those cases out there. Um, we we, but, but the majority of the cases that, that come out is that, that agencies are paying off 
of number one, it's not even the initial deployments anymore. The initial deployments, most, most, most of the courts are looking at them. They review that initial deployment under Graham versus Connor, and um, they're saying, for the most part, it's a matter of law, we're doing a pretty good job with there. Where we get into trouble is when we have a continuation of a bite, when we have the supervisors, uh, failure to supervise and failure to train, and then these handler compensation issues. Those are the ones that are going to come back and bite a department in the ass, 100%. Yeah, and the bite case is where the dog should be there. So you see a lot of these where um, <clears throat> the dogs bite, and people are like, oh, God, if you bite them, even if it's a legit bite, like you meet, you cross the gram threshold, you cross all these thresholds, the first thing that they do is they come after qualified immunity to hold the handler uh, or whoever personally responsible, right? But to do that, they have to prove that there was a substantial error made somewhere and when you kind of frame it and a lot of times they make some mistakes when they do it but when if you frame it in the correct you know if it's framed correctly and it's done correctly you know and you meet all three prongs of gram then it's really not that big of a deal like yeah the giant the bite is justified it is what it is and you know at that point it's like well i mean where do we go from here right so they deny uh they deny request to, to remove qualified immunity and it's like okay well so now what so that is where a lot of people, you know, I see it all the time. It's a knee-jerk reaction. People get bit, and they don't know anything about the call. Now, granted, there is some other shit that goes on with handling, and I'm talking about the knee-jerk reactions on Facebook from people within the canine industry. See, there was a bite in California recently that happened where they bit a guy, and I will admit that the handling was not that great. Um, however, the bite was completely justified, right? Like the guy was on federal paper for firearms violations. He had threatened his mom. He was doing all kinds of stupid shit. And on top of that, there was more people in the house. If you look in the video also, there was a second dog that fucking showed up. So whatever the precursor, and I actually know what the precursors are that led up to the point where this dude gets smoked, then there was some, there, there was definitely a reason to bite this fool. Then there's the one in Reno with Washoe County Sheriff's Office where mm -hmm. the marshal service were chasing that dude. And the only clip you see is this poor fool on his knees with his hands in his air, in the air, and the dog just nukes him. And they're like, oh, he was giving up. But they don't tell you that they thought he was firing shots from the car 30 seconds before that at them and that they were told to back off and that he was wanted by the marshals for failure to report and all this other shit. And he was on federal paper for, you know, endeavoring to manufacture. There was all kinds of stuff. What they also don't tell you is that the guy settled for 17,000 bucks immediately with the admission that the dog didn't even damage him. That dog <laughs> fucked him up. And he was like, yeah, I'll take it. And his shitbag lawyer probably gave him 3000 bucks so he could buy honey buns. And that's what he got out of it, right? And yep, they got no admission of guilt. And then there's the one in San Diego where they bit the dude and the handler was taking his time choking that dog off. And the bite was legit. They sued. They got nowhere with it. And those three cases keep making the fucking round. I saw one the other day. It, somebody popped up like, this is bullshit. I'm like, "You're shut up. Like, you don't know what happened. And I've actually gone back and read all the complaints. I've gone back and read. And on one of the cases, I managed to get a hold of the actual report from the police department or from one of the sheriff's departments. And so it, it, it it's a that that mentality and there are, there was a there was there was an article written by some goofy reporter in the Washington Post during the whole mm -hmm. um, yep. Black Lives Matter thing right it was an op-ed she wrote an op-ed that was extremely biased that was extremely poorly researched and cherry-picked data um, in short it was pretty much the problem with most media today 
that it was bullshit. So uh, I reached out to her. Um, she denied, or she she refused to come on the show and talk about it. Shockingly, but she is the reporter for um, the Washington Post dealing with um, racial injustice and policing, and she's a lawyer. Shockingly, apparently not a good one. So, um, and I kind of challenged her a little bit and I was polite. Um, and she, and I'm not even going to mention her name, but there were, I'm sure there are admins reading that article or that op-ed and it's make, giving them stomach aches. And oh, I that, have no doubt. And that is not true. That woman doesn't know shit about anything. And that article was cherry, or that op-ed, I need to stop calling it an article. That opinion piece was poorly researched was misquoted and mis misidentified multiple cases, ignored the elephant in the room when it comes to case law, and was presented as a factual argument and article that was well-researched and presented as such. And it wasn't. And I think that is kind of like where we get into this. So when I tell admins, look, most of this is failure to supervise. And that's why I wanted to start the entire conversation out with, like, this is the best practices, and this is where you need to find it, and this is where... We need to look at it. So when we talk about failure to supervise, what does that look like for a department? So when you give your admin schools, um, where, what, what do you say? This is what supervision looks like. Like, what does supervision look like for a canine unit, whether it's one dog or thirty dogs? Uh, well, the, the biggest thing is is that you have to have, especially for these smaller agencies, you have to have a dedicated supervisor that is in charge of this this team, and the supervisor has to have a good understanding, the frontline supervisor has to have a good understanding of the capabilities of the dog. They have to have an understanding of how this dog was trained. Um, and they have to have an understanding of the case law that, that um, applies to the use and the deployment of this dog. Um, when you have, uh, have a failure of one of those three things in there, um, I'm going to add in there, actually, there would be four of them, um, add in there these best practice guidelines. If you have a, have a failure in one of those four categories, um, then the agency itself is setting itself up for um, liability. That's where the liability is. It, it, it really, just like any other unit, we always talk about our frontline supervisors, our sergeants being, um, uh, being the key to a successful agency. And that's no different for a canine unit. If your frontline supervisor, your sergeant, is the key um, to the success uh, or failure of uh, of the the canine unit, so they have to understand. They have to have very good working knowledge uh, of all this. I'm not saying they need to be a trainer. I'm not saying they have to be a handler. Um, but they they have to attend training regularly. They have to uh, whether the whether it's a basic handler school, they should be they should be stopping by there. They should be understanding. They should be looking over uh, the curriculum. Um, at, at very least in having an understanding of what that curriculum and that lesson plan looks like. Um, same thing with their maintenance training. They should be out there uh, with, their, uh, uh, with their handlers, or at least stopping by and, and making sure that uh, their training, whoever their vendor is or whoever's doing their maintenance training is doing the right, doing the right things. Um, and uh, I'll tell you this. So a group uh, in the, uh, I won't mention their names, but it was up in the Chicago area uh, running a, a private uh, police dog uh, vending uh, school. They run basic handler and they also run maintenance training uh, for a, a good a good 
section of the uh, the uh, police dogs up up in the northeastern part of the state. Um, they were running a scenario that I happened to be at where uh, they took a mannequin's head, and the trainer, who is not law enforcement, by the way, took took a, a mannequin's head, put it in the window of a van, and then tried to entice the dogs to see which dogs would come and bite this 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 mannequin's head. Fuck. Okay. So I go, I go, just stop, stop right here. What are you doing? <laughs> what? Whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What what are do you have any idea what you're doing? You know there are, there are areas on the body that we don't want our dogs targeting, like the head. I mean, can you I mean just so so had I not been there to stop it. Um and and I, I trust me, I didn't get I wasn't well like, you know, after that, but if I wasn't there to stop that, you know, handlers are are, are just participating cuz well, it's their dog's vendor. Well, if there was a supervisor who was well-versed in the case law, who was up there watching that training, you know, they would have known, you know, hey, this is unacceptable. And, um, you know, we can't be doing that. So so those are the things that the supervisors have got to be involved in. They have to understand. If your dog is a, a bite-and-hold dog, um, then, then you should know what a bite-and-hold dog and that training methodology actually involves. Same thing with a bark-and-hold dog. Um, what does that training methodology look like? Um, does my dog just go and bark at the person, and if they move, then he bites? Does he just bark at the person? Does the dog bark at the person and will never bite unless there's an override command given by the handler? What? Because when a plaintiff, when you're sitting at a deposition and the plaintiff's attorney asks you that, you want to have a real good understanding of what that is. Um, because we, we we see in the Campbell case, Campbell versus City at Springboro, those supervisors had zero understanding of what they said. As a matter of fact, the, the lieutenant, uh, the street sergeant, the handler, and the dog's trainer, all under under deposition, sworn deposition, gave conflicting ideas as to what park and hold dog was supposed to do in that case. All of them. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's incumbent that the supervisor knows um, exactly uh, how their dog or dog units or their trainers um, what they're doing and that they're they're um, complying with the law and that they're complying with the agency's policy. It's huge, absolutely huge. And you got to pay. In my opinion. And you got and you got and you got uh, and you got to pay your handlers. Um, that's probably the second. I think on our website, that's our question of the month. Uh, we do on our website a question of the month. It's because we get tons of questions, you know, throughout the month, and and I answer. Uh, answer all of them, and I try to pick out really good questions that I get, and that that is one of the one of the top questions we get. It's handler compensation, handler compensation, handler compensation, and uh, so uh, Terry Fleck wrote an article years ago about handler compensation, um, and I updated that article and I brought it kind of into the twenty uh, first century. Um, I love Terry, but some of the stuff was outdated, so I brought that up into the twenty first century, and uh, we're looking. Uh, so I put that on there, and um, yeah, you got to pay your handlers. There's a few, very few, limited uh, 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 Fair Labor Standards Act exemptions. Um, most uh, agencies don't fall under that. Some do, um, but you got to pay your handlers for for at home. I don't care. That, that'll get you also. That's for sure. Oh yeah, it totally will. Well, so um, everything we've talked about, you do in a seminar format, correct? 
I do, yes. So where can we... Well, okay, so where... Well, it's all the same website anyway. So the website that we keep talking about is um, your website um, where it's all relevant case law, it's all updated, it's all sorted by judicial district, it's all sorted by state. Like, there's articles in there specific to the industry. Um, so where is that? Yeah, that's at uh, sheepdogguardian.com. Uh, uh, so... Uh, on our website, like you said, we have a ton of information on there. The majority of it is, yes, based on um, the law or statutory law or constitutional law, the case law, all of that to assist handlers quickly to be able to have access to that at their fingertips. Uh, but we do have, uh, we added a resources and articles section that it does have industry standard articles that are on there. And um, uh a lot of those were written by Terry Fleck, but a lot of those are written by um, kind of the big guns in the industry uh, who can uh, who give their opinions about what they're seeing out there and uh, uh, their uh, opinions on certain matters. So we try to get all of that and keep all that going. And yeah, we do this in a, uh, a seminar format. We took a, took a hit because of COVID. Obviously we were, lined up to have the best year um, that, that, that we probably were ever going to have. And um, then we took a shit when it, when it went to COVID. So yeah, yeah. Um, we believe me, come we back know. Around now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, believe me, we know. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're just, we're just starting to come back now. I think we've got two in Indiana coming up uh, in October. We got uh, Buffalo, New York in, uh, in November. Fuck. I, I hope it's inside. Got, uh, <laughs> Because oh. we oh were God. up there last November and my feet are still cold. <laughs> Miserable. Oh, it was fucking terrible. Oh, they're great. Nice dudes, man. Great department. Uh, uh, Sheriff's Office, Erie County Sheriff's Office, and the Buffalo PD guys are awesome. Awesome group of guys, but God, it's cold up there. Holy shit. That was miserable. <laughs> I can't imagine. I, it, it's got to be very similar to Chicago. I mean, if you've never if you've never stood out on the highway and directed traffic in thirty below zero weather, then you just don't know what the you know you Fuck that. just don't know what uh, life has for you. Uh, <laughs> nope. That's for sure. It's it's horrible. Um, yeah. So we we're starting to um, we're starting to come back and uh, we do it by request. So we have a lot of people that request, and uh, all we do is we handle we'll handle everything. We're just looking for an agency to host. Um, and, uh, then we'll come out We're you know, we have just a couple, um, things that need to be done, you know, certain, depending on where it is in the country, cause we need to get there. And, um, uh, so there might be some minimum seating in there, but uh, we have a two day seminar. Uh, we have a couple one day seminars. The two day seminars are most popular. We do a narcotic and patrol. And then, uh, we have a super, uh, supervisors course that we run and, um, we also do uh, explosives, um, accelerant. So pretty much all the disciplines, uh, we can uh, we get in there and go over all the case law and the industry standards that uh, go with that. So um, I I love it. I was pretty much doing it just in this uh, when I started prior to Terry's passing, uh, just in the uh, the Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin region. And uh, since Terry's passing, we we've been able to get a, uh, around the country, Las Vegas. And um, Maine, from Las Vegas to Maine, down to Florida, and um, it has been a, a real experience. Great, it's great to get out there and see uh, what people outside of our, uh, our our general area are doing, and um, 
you know, some you get to some of these these areas and you talk to these handlers and you're thinking to yourself, good, good Lord, are we even operating under the same constitution? You know, uh, so uh, it's been a lot of fun. I just I, I really enjoy that. So hopefully um, soon I'll be able to be done with my my real job and put me on the uniform and just do that full time and then and really help handlers out and get that information out to the handlers. That's really what we're about. Eric, that's pretty. That's great. That's that's great. That um, yeah. We'll get, hopefully, uh, twenty twenty one or the remainder of this year is pretty good for you. Um, one last thing before we go, and I just thought of this today. Um, one of a uh, friend of ours that's a dog trainer up in Michigan had a question for us. He texted Ted and I with a question because he has a chief up there who's an idiot who believes that. <laughs> handler as he's tracking needs to give warnings the entire time he's tracking trying to claim that it's case law and he must give warnings the whole time which i think all he's doing is saying hey kill my guy because he's right there go ahead and kill him um that's all he really cares about is, is bullshit is there any case law federally that talks about the issuing of warnings yeah, so there's the, the big case that talks about warnings is uh, Cool versus City of Minnetonka. It's out of the Eighth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and it, that's probably the most widely cited um, case that deals with warnings. Um, and it's they, the Eighth Circuit came to the conclusion that. Prior to deploying a biting police dog, um, issuing a warning uh, is almost a mandate. That's what the Eighth Circuit said, is that it's almost a mandate because they thought that, or at least in their opinion, that more, more offenders would give up rather than get bitten by a police dog. Now, um, I think that's the, this chief has a, um, not a very good understanding of the warning. Shocking. So let's look at there. There are, yeah, of course. Right. And <laughs> there are other cases out there that say, yes, we should warn people prior to releasing a police dog uh, to bite somebody. However, there are circumstances yep. um, when it case. is appropriate not to there's, there's uh, actually, I think, I think there's three or four cases. There's one out of the 11th Circuit, one out of the 10th Circuit. Yep. Um, and basically what they say is when the handler knows or reasonably believes that the person that they are looking for is armed and or otherwise dangerous, armed with a weapon, um, then warning announcements uh, are not needed. Yep. So if we're tracking a an offender who we reasonably believe is um, armed with a handgun, there is zero reason to put ourselves in harm's way and issue warning announcements. None. And um, that's really, really key because we can't, we cannot be allowing our officers to go out there and, and, uh, kamikazes and just take you know, take this um take a bullet 
just because some chief thinks that um, they should be issued warning announcements, every, you know, every five feet on their track. That's asinine. How we run that at the kennel when I'm teaching handlers is I give them that parameter, right? Like if you're tracking somebody you suspect to be armed, you don't got to say anything. And then I say, and now you got to use good judgment, right? Depending on what your gram analysis is before you even start the track, right? So you're tracking, just because you track somebody doesn't mean you're going to bite them, first of all. Second of all, that if you do track somebody and it becomes a situation where you are biting, then it becomes an issue of control. So if you go back to Kerr and they talk about leash control and management and all this other stuff, you know, with proper leash management and proper training, you shouldn't be able to get to the point where the dog just rolls up on somebody and tags them. And the exception that I give guys is if you're tracking in an area and or a time of day where you reasonably expect people that are in the that, sh that are in the area that have a legitimate reason of being there right if you're tracking through a school zone at two o'clock in the afternoon you can probably guess that there's going to be people that should be there if you're tracking through private property at three o'clock in the morning and a trooper has just pitted somebody and they bailed out of the car and they're going to a horse field or they're going to a cow field where you don't reasonably expect somebody to be there then you start getting into some areas that are a little more about how you interpret what they are suspected of doing. If you know information about the suspect, if you know what information was known or not known at the time that you started the track. But to blanket statement it and say you have to do this is fucking stupid. Just dumb. no. Again, I, I no, agree one hundred percent. What I go back to um, my ninety nine percent rule. 99% um, rule, if you can make warning announcements uh, that it's not going to endanger you, then you should give the, then, then give the warning announcements. Um, but then you have your 1% rule where there is, where you're tracking that person. First of all, if the dog is out there, most likely this is a, a more of a serious uh, event to begin with. Um, but uh, you have three cases, sure, uh, that talk about... Um, uh, not having to give warning announcements, and that is the 10th Circuit, which is Thompson versus Salt Lake County, the 11th Circuit, Crenshaw versus Lister, and then the 4th Circuit, of State of Rogers versus Smith. All three of the those circuits have said that when the handler knows or reasonably believes that the person that they're looking for and searching for is armed, then they don't have to give a warning. And we can always go back to Tennessee versus Garner, um, that uh, we yep. give warnings where it's feasible. You know, and I think a lot of handlers don't understand that the majority of <clears throat> use of force cases are dog deployment use of force cases where there's an apprehension involved. The court analyzes those cases under Tennessee versus Garner. It's not just uh, does not just deal with deadly force against the fleeing fender. It has to deal with the propensity or the amount of force that was used. And that's why the dog is always in there because a you have typically on a dog case you have a fleeing you have somebody who's fleeing and the second part is is what is the propensity of force, and that's the dog. So we need to look at both of those cases have to be uh, applied when you're on the street. Yes, mucho mucho bueno, and yeah. So there that's, you go. Yeah, that is um, that's sort of what Eric and I Eric and I were talking about that today. We got a text from our friend. And this, I was like, well, that's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I was like, well, not really. But I mean, it definitely is one of them. 
And, you know, and basically Eric and I came to the same conclusion. It was like, well, if there are, if you reasonably suspect they're armed, you don't got to say shit. And, I, and then I added, it was like, you got to use some common sense. If you're tracking through a neighborhood at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, you probably should shorten the leash up a little bit. And, you know, you should be doing like little mini area searches versus, you know, chasing with a trooper that just pitted somebody at three o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the morning running to a fucking cow field that, you know, is five minutes ahead of you. Like, I mean, that's a little bit different than, you know, and then like the age of the track comes into play. There's all these other mitigating factors. But this blanket statement of do it this way all the time, I'm like, no, that's not. No, I, that, <laughs> I wrote no. an expert. I, I wrote an expert opinion on a case up in the northern district of Illinois. It was a uh, armed robbery case. A dog handler gets out there to uh, arm robbery of a gas station. Handler gets out there um, within 100 feet of starting the track. He finds that the dog actually finds the gun or a gun, I should say. Oh, and about 300, yeah, 300 feet past that, the dog finds the offender in a bush and bites him. And one of the one of the issues that the plaintiff's attorney was trying to bring up was was this whole issue of warning announcements. And you know, the handler never issued a warning announcement. And my argument was, well, why would the handler put himself in in, in immediate uh, a danger. He just found a gun on a track from an armed robbery. He's not required under the current case law, um, even though it's not within the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, the current case law to the Fourth, uh, the Eleventh, and the Tenth say that he doesn't have to end under the Supreme Court, Tennessee versus Garner. And so they actually brought in the plaintiff's witness, the plaintiff's expert witness on that, and and because he opined differently, of course, than I did. And um, under deposition, got him to admit that I was right and he was wrong. And that that is, in fact, you know, would be stupid to make warning announcements when you're tracking, you know, somebody who you believe is armed. And um, so that's demonstrated that they were fucking armed. Like you found a gun in the flight path. (laughs) I mean, like they've not not suspected. Like I've just demonstrated to you that they might as well fucking brandished it. So, yeah, I mean, 100%. So uh, we can get you at uh, Sheepdog's Guardian. Sheepdog Guardian. I can't say it correctly. Sheepdogguardian.com, correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. And it's a subscription service. Um, If you're a canine handler and you're listening to this, go talk. What's it cost a year? It's like. It's $50 for uh, most people. Yeah. Yeah. Annually, it's $50 for most people. And um, I agreed that anybody who was under the Terry Fleck, he had different prices depending on what year you came in. I said, I'll just keep all that the same. And if you're an association member with uh, a particular association that's reached out to us, uh, you actually get it at a discounted rate. So So, uh, $25 a year. So it's pretty good. So at most it's 50 bucks a year. So whoever's listening to this and you're in a small department, you got less than, let's say you're average, you've got less than 25 officers, you have one dog, and you've been a handler for like four years, go sign up. <laughs> and for the love of God, read something and talk. go talk to your fucking sergeant or your lieutenant and be like, hey, give me 50 bucks. Let me sign up for this and tell them and just be like, you can get, you know, and you have multiple logins for them too. And they can go read the admin portion. And the work is done. All they got to do is fucking read. So, um, which, like, as we started this interview out, most fucking <laughs> handlers don't like to read. So, 
Uh, yeah, man, this has been great. I, I, I really appreciate the time, and um, it's been one I've wanted to check off the list for a while. Um, you know, I think we did uh, Terry's work justice tonight. I think you're doing a fantastic job um, in picking up the torch and moving it down the line um, and saving the rest of us idiots from doing stupid shit. So, <laughs> well, so. I appreciate that, and it's uh, it's a lot of work, but it's um it's out of love for the industry uh, and my fellow canine handlers and, uh, and keeping everybody out of trouble. Yep. And that's, uh, that's the point. So yeah, if you guys want to sign up and get, uh, get on the website, sheep.guardian.com. And then he also comes out and does seminars, which is all um, there as well. I know most of those guys, thank you. Somebody, no, nah, you were, yeah, you said you're going to do one in Buffalo um, and you're doing some in Indiana, which is where we're at right now. Uh, so, uh, look those up, be sure to sign up. Um, um, yeah, Eric, what do you got? Uh, nothing. I'm ready to go eat Mexican. I know that. Yeah. There's some tacos calling our name or some pitas or something. I know definitely there's <laughs> a margarita in my future. That is for sure. So yeah. Uh, Mike, man, thanks again. This has been awesome. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a great time. Excellent. We'll talk to everybody soon. Thanks guys. See you. Our oldest sponsor, our first sponsor, and our good friend, and a great dude all around, Arno at ALM Canine Equipment. Uh, his suits and his canine tugs and bite sleeves are some of the best in the industry. His, dude, I have a whole array of different uh, hidden sleeves from him of all various levels of dogs. Uh, he has a discount code for us, which is amazing, WD Radio for 10% off your first order. ALMCanineEquipment.com. Give him, a, give him a shout, man. Arno is a good guy with great quality equipment. ALMK9Equipment.com. One of the original three sponsors that have been with us from the beginning is Tripwire Operations Group, LLC. They're an internationally recognized leading provider of products, services, and training for federal, state, local, and law enforcement agencies and military units. They are ATF licensed for explosive material manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits. These kits are great for detection canine imprinting, and they have three different kits to choose from. These three kits combined create the complete picture for ex the explosive threats of canines. Be sure to check them out, tripwireops.org. The music in this episode is used with permission by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at Brother Deeg, that's spelled D-E-G-E dot -E net. Be sure to check him out there or on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or anywhere you stream media. This episode has been edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt. Visit our other sites at patreon.com, look for Working Dog Radio, hrdpolicecanine.com, and look for the nearest seminar near you. You got your reasons, I got my wants. Still got that feeling, but I'm too old to die young Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, .blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.